Hi, welcome to the Neurosick podcast, where we unite people and organizations to support and advance neurodiverse people in cybersecurity and beyond to make the world more diverse and inclusive. My name is Nathan Chung, and today my special guest today is Rachel Harpley, technical recruiter and founder of Recruit Bit Security. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Nathan. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Let's start with that. Can you, t- can you t- tell me more about yourself? Yeah. So um, I've got about nine years in recruiting, about six years in technical recruiting with a full cycle environment. And I've been really dug into and focused on InfoSec and IT security uh, for about the last four or five years. Um, I also co-founded the Cybersecurity Council of Arizona, which is focused on um, bringing diversity and representation to workforce development initiatives in Arizona, and um, and founded RecruitBit Security with a, a focus on InfoSec talent. Um, you're really seeing our, our clients and our customers, both as the candidates and the, uh, the, the hiring managers that we represent present. Um, a, a little bit more personal, I uh, last year was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, and I believe that I'm on the spectrum of autism with traits of ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, and misophonia. I also recently came out as non-binary and an abolitionist against white supremacy. Um, I think I also suffer from rejection sensitive, sensitivity disorder, and I'm a survivor of domestic violence as well. Oh my, that's that's a lot. I'm a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> Excuse me, Nathan. <laughs> I also have trouble with names, which is probably the, the hardest part of being a recruiter. I'm terrible with names. Um, I've I've been on a date with someone that I've known for years and introducing them to old friends I've known for decades and then forgotten everyone's name in the process of introducing both people. Um, so yeah, Nathan, thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and I, I do the exact same thing. It, it really depends on the time of day and how much caffeine I am. How many? Yes, yes. I'm, I tried new coffee today. I got some creme brulee coffee, so I'll blame it on that. Oh, I love it. <laughs> okay, so uh, typically, typically people who are neurodiverse are cited as being really good candidates for a cybersecurity job. But in your job as a re- recruiter of cybersecurity talent, ha- has your neurodiverse conditions helped you or impeded you? Well, I wasn't, I had completely forgotten about it, but the name thing comes, uh, that's been a a hindrance for sure. Um, I think in the ways that it's helped me, you know, being a a pattern seeker and a pattern identifier, that's helped a lot in the process of understanding people, you know, even as someone who's neurodiverse and has autistic and ADHD traits, um, you know, being able to think about people in patterns and, um, and make correlations there also resumes and, and, and identifying patterns in that way. Um, but you know, the names piece is, is been a, a big challenge and, um, it's also a major challenge when I'm overstimulated or if I, um, you know, need to mask and have, and have been masking, um, you know, that that's, that can make it very hard as well. Yep, I know that feeling. Sometimes I can be in meeting, meetings and get overstimulated and crash. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, yeah. uh, so the, the cybersecurity skills gap is often estimated at around 3.5 million jobs. People with neurodiverse conditions bring amazing skills that we discussed, like, like they can close the gaps, such as hyper focus, attention to detail, strong creativity, and more. Sometimes it can be simple as 
finding a needle in haystack through that mountain of security logs, this is leading to a greater push to embrace neurodiversity in the workplace. Can you share your insights and trends that you see for recruitment? Uh, yeah, so I think that was part of what, uh, you know, my motivation to get into InfoSec was twofold. It was both my desire for privacy and safety, but also because I, you know, five, six years ago, I was hearing, well, we need two and a half million. Now, well, now we need three and a half million, right? So, um, it, you know, wanting to help solve for that. And I think that the work from home push has been a significant asset in that way. Um, you know, in my experience and what I've heard from other people, being able to um, control my environment and enhance my environment in a way that is specific to my needs. Because, you know, we think about diversity, we all, there's a, a variety of needs. There's some common factors often, um, but, you know, we have our individual nuances and some of it is that we just need to be alone. Um, but I think that it also presents some of the challenges too, because as neurodiverse people, um, you know, we don't always know what other people are talking about, or like we miss things that are implied or understood in ways that other people, um, you know, just pick up. And in the office, uh, sometimes we can catch it because we're seeing, we're able to see things that are happening, even if we're not in those conversations. But um, as a, a decentralized workforce, that can create a, a greater challenge. Um, and I think it also pr uh, pulls out systemic challenges of class status and, and race being bigger problems uh, too. Those biases can um, create a, a greater play. But um, I think because companies are very, very much recognizing that need and it's becoming more clear that um, they just, you know, th that we have to grow more security talent. We can't all just keep fighting over the same talent. Um, companies are starting to open up new channels for that. Um, I, I see, still see a lot of workforce development that focuses primarily on college graduates and creating a pipeline from from graduate uh, level people. But, you know, that's a four-year plan uh, at best, right? And uh, companies need talent today. And so that's why a lot of my work is focused on um, career pivoters and people that are maybe coming from IT or insurance or auditing of some kind um, where or you know, other fields, but where they have transferable skills because security has to understand the business in order to really be effective at, at their role and, and in order to, uh, you know, really get change to happen, right? To have that internal influence. Um, so to try and be an advocate for those career pivoters and, and help them bridge that gap and help businesses see what they can achieve by selecting someone like that rather than a college graduate. There's, I think, always going to be, quote unquote, always, uh, but there will be jobs for graduates, but working hard to make jobs for career pivoters as well. And you know, so I think there's some changes coming along those ways. There's uh, changes happening to the recruitment process. You know, companies are starting to understand um, ways that they can, uh, you know, they're seeing the attrition in people fall out of the recruiting process. And so becoming more uh, aware of how they can change and adapt in order to uh, keep those uh, professionals engaged and hopefully hired. Great. And I see the same. It makes me curious, though, uh, for people who are transitioning into cybersecurity, uh, can, can you describe some of the fields that, that you often see as trends as transitioning from a different field like into cyber? 
Um, yeah, so I, I've seen some teachers, uh, both at the uh, uh, higher education, uh, you know, higher institution level, and as well in K through 12, some teachers make the switch. Um, you know, that's one that you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, yeah, cyber, but, um, you know, from the way that they are problem solvers, and the, you know, the way that they construct and, and are avid learners, you know, that's a core component of being a, a security professional, there's no arriving, right? You, know, you have to have that uh, drive internally. Um, an, an insurance, quite a few from insurance, uh, whether they're uh, on the underwriting side or, you know, commercial insurance side, um, audits as well. You know, I think that was really common, especially when the push started, when I, I started talking to a lot of uh, Sarbanes-Oxley auditors that were trying to get into IT auditing and, and SOC 2 auditing. Well, it wasn't SOC 2 at the time, but um, you know, trying to get into some of these other compliance standards. Um, and then also seeing a, a trend in legal with uh, some privacy pieces, you know, with the shift there, um, people moving from other types of law or other types of business law into privacy policy. Um, web developers, right, uh, I've seen quite a few, especially in Phoenix, there's the boot, uh, boot camp game is strong uh, and seeing uh, folks who go into a boot camp thinking they want to be in web development and in that process realize they want to be in web security um, and then taking it a little bit step a little step farther from there and then also uh, you know I think this is kind of the the bridge I saw initially when I first moved from technical recruiting into infosec uh, you know, IT managers, uh, folks who had been in the career for 15, 20 years and focused on IT, realizing they, they sort of hit the ceiling and ageism was uh, affecting them. And ageism is unfortunately very real in IT um, and, and seeing the opportunity for them to uh, re-career and reskill from a security standpoint and build on that infrastructure knowledge that they have and focus into security and, and kind of kickstart in a new way for themselves. Wow, that is very insightful, especially about the teachers, because with COVID, it's, it's really hard to be a teacher now. Really. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they have some massive challenges ahead of them, for sure. Yep, absolutely. Sadly, the world today is still a largely ableist society that often discriminates against people like, people like us with neurodiverse conditions. This leads many people to use masking in order to fit in. But this leads to other struggles. I myself have used masking on occasion. How about how about yourself? How, and how has masking affected your life and career? Uh, all day, every day. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I know I present as a very. Um, a high functional, you know, I present as a normie in a lot of ways, and I've worked very hard at that. I was in Girl Scouts for 12 years. Um, I, my mom ensured I was in church every Sunday and youth group and choir, and I was in summer school, but I was always the odd duck out. Um, I was, you know, I've, I've had great friends. I don't want to, I'm not trying to have a pity party, but, uh, you know, I worked very hard to understand how other people operated and tried to be like them. Um, and it, it really wasn't until, um, I, you know, it was more of like a young adult when I realized other people weren't working as hard to do what they were, you know, to just exist and to, to live. Um, 
I had an old best friend. She said, why, you know, we walked into a convenience store and the cashier was trying to flirt with me and I couldn't make eye contact. I like, you know, the whole thing was weird. And she's like, what is your deal? Like, why can't you make eye contact with anybody? And another point she had called me out. She said, you're like a chameleon. It's like, I don't even know who you are. You're always with whoever we're with, you're, you act differently. And that was just survival for me. That was, um, you know, mirroring people. And, uh, you know, I thought that's what people liked. They liked me better when I mirrored them. Um, they, you know, I thought that's how everyone else behaved. And I, and so, um, you know, as I started to learn more about, you know, as a re recruiter wanting to learn more about diversity and hear other people's stories, the more I listened to people with ADHD and autism, I was like, oh, that, that's me. <laughs> uh, oh, that's the thing. That's the thing I have. And, um, you know, it's always been that pressure to perform and to mask. And, um, you know, I think when I started my business, I, I put an even more intense pressure on myself because I felt like I had to be findable in order for, uh, in order to run a business, you know, in order to do this type of work. I knew that most of the experienced security professionals were actively not findable, right? <laughs> they worked hard to hide. Um, so I felt like I had to push myself out there and I had to do these things and I, I felt like I had to do it like everyone else. And that definitely, um, you know, I burned out at the end of 2019, um, and hit, hit a real wall. Um, you know, I, I submitted to WESIS, right? At the beginning of 2019, I submitted to WESIS and my lightning talk was accepted. And that uh, was the largest uh, crowd I'd ever spoke to. And I barely remember being on stage. And my friends, you know, they all said, oh, you did so good. But it was like, what did I, where was I <laughs> in that moment, right? You know, like I, I got my selfie, I recorded it, it was real. Um, but I, you know, at what cost, right? And, and so I, that led me to have to re-examine and, and to spend that time of what's me and what's the mask and what feels good and what's performing. Um, and, you know, it's weird to call it performing because it's, it's really surviving. Right. But uh, taking, yeah, but, but taking that time and there were a lot of things that were hard about the pandemic, but um, it, if, if the pandemic wouldn't have happened, I still would have had to, like just stop, reflect, spend time, you know, like that, that the timing was right for me too. Um, and I think I'm still trying to figure out what it means for me to go forward uh, because then it's, how do I feel safe? Okay. I'm starting to figure out what's me, but do I feel safe doing that? You know, like, um, like I, I put my they thems on my Twitter as like a, like a compulsive. And it was almost a lot of my life is just pushing myself off the cliff. Right. Like I know I need to do this thing and boosh. Right. And, um, and then it was like, Oh, what did I do? <laughs> what does this mean? You know, like, Oh, I, maybe I should talk to my, you know, I've uh, been with my, uh, my sweetie for two and a half years. Like, Oh, maybe I should talk to him about it. Like, <laughs> you know, like, am I talking to my people, people in my immediate life about these things? Right. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, and masking is a really interesting thing and it's helped me give compassion for others and think about ways like when I'm interviewing with someone how you know I try to be uh, explain what the conversation is going to look like and how uh, we'll go through the you know what the progress of the conversation will look like and I try to be uh, casual and you know chatty and, and try to do things to help them feel more comfortable too. So they feel like that they can, um, you know, relax a little and, and not have to, um, you know, not feel as formal. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And 
You brought up a very good point about workplaces often not being safe for neurodiverse people like us. In your view, what, what can be done to make workplaces more friendly so that people don't have to wear masks and they can just be who they are? What, what tips would you have? Uh, well, the challenge here is that, you know, with diversity, there isn't a, a one way, right? Um, but I think that the, the biggest thing to do is to start with listening. Um, you know, the odds are you have neurodiverse, you know, your company already has neurodiverse people there, right? And, and so how can you create a space for them to speak up? And to share, um, you know, share their experiences, share what their needs are. Um, and, and if you start with that, then you can build from there and you can, you know, build out, you know, it's, it's not their job to be your consultant, right? Um, you know, I think it's important for big companies that, you know, have budgets and um, have this capacity to, uh, to pay for this knowledge, you know, just like we need to be paying uh, black people for their expertise. Um, you know, you don't just go to your black friend and, you know, ask them to teach you how to not be racist, right? You, you go out to the resources that are available. Um, so, you know, starting with listening, like, for example, there's a, a nonprofit that is called Communication First, and they focus on um, providing advocacy for um, neurodiverse people who uh, who find it difficult to rely on speech, right? So there there are nonprofits and there are groups out there that um, advocate and, and speak. And I think that's the big thing is to, um, you know, you don't go to the dentist to get an eye exam, Right. So as an organization, you need to go to people on the spectrum and hear from them. You need to go to black people and hear from them. You need to go to Latino people and hear from them. And, and then you can integrate those thoughts together. And, and Absolutely. really, yeah. And, and really as a part of that going, you know, going to your team and, and um, talking to your team, it, these are hard conversations, but they're valuable, right. And, and creating a, 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 a space to have those questions about our biases, because we all have bias, right. We all, um, we all live in the access of privilege and oppression, right. So, um, you know, there's many aspects to my identity, and some of those aspects give me a privilege. Some of those aspects um, also hold me back, right? And, and the same for you, Nathan. Um, and by having real conversations about that, we can also then talk about our biases. You know, like, um, you know, we're talking about a candidate today. Uh, in the, the consulting role that I have, and you know, we're trying to understand if our perspective has to do with our bias, you know, like, are, are we feeling this way about them as a candidate because of their, because of our biases? Are we overcoming our bias enough to examine whether this candidate is capable of doing this job and serving our customers and doing those things um, and, and really having to sit with that and, and spend some time in those moments and talking to each other and, and investing that time. Yep, absolutely. And one tip I often hear is sometimes it could be just as simple as a manager asking a worker, what do they need to, to thrive at work? It's, oh, yeah. Sometimes it's just simple. Yeah, question. yeah, exactly. That, that simple question. And it could be things like, okay, so say you're in the workplace still, um, 
Like uh, I've worked with software development managers where they ensured that the area of cubes, right? Like the workspace where their developers were, um, they took out all the bulbs in the overhead lighting, right? Like the rest of the office, you know, they do what they do, but in the area that's for the software developers, you know, there was no overhead lighting. Um, they were cognizant, you know, the entire company was cognizant of being more quiet around in that area, right? Like there's a difference between the sales team and the software development team and, um, you know, little things like that, uh, right? Like with my misophonia, um, you know, if there's like ticking or um, bless their heart, but if somebody has like, oral sounds that they make a lot <laughs> like, oh it's really, really hard to sit next to their cube right like uh like, it was little things like that like where it, it's uh you know and I, I don't think we, you i think you asked me what misophonia was that's a weird one but the common one you know neurotypicals don't like nails on chalkboards right but um oh. you know but uh misophonia is any uh disproportionate emotional reaction to sounds right so like um i might enjoy clicking my uh uh, my pen, but if somebody else is clicking the pen, it might, you know, drive me crazy or what have you. Um, but yeah, the little accommodations like that can go a long way. Yep, absolutely. And one area, one, one of your conditions, which uh, I quite frankly have never heard about before, uh, RSD, or rejection sensitive dysphoria. Uh, it's a condition that affects many people who have ADHD, but I've never heard of it, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, can, you, can you explain what RSD is and how it affects you? Yeah, so um, I'm uh, obligatory. I'm not a doctor. I don't have a PhD. Um, from what I understand, there is some debate right now, actually, uh, regarding the DSM and RSD. Uh, there is a train of thought where... Um, uh, some experts consider it to be a um, a pathology, so it's a uh, meaning that it is uncurable, it's untreatable. You basically need to medicate it, um, and and some experts believe that it is a, a learned condition and that it has to do tied into with something called complex PTSD or essentially part of your um, your neurological development as a child. Um, and essentially rejection sensitivity dysphoria is uh, anticipating rejection and operating from a, a, a stance that you will be rejected. So like, for example, with, uh, with ADHD or autism, you just, you learn that uh, people don't like that you do X, Y, or Z. And so you're afraid to do that thing because you know how people will respond. Uh, for the people or for the experts who uh, who speak of RSD as related to complex PTSD as part of your early childhood development. Um, so like with those on the spectrum that have tics or, um, or, or audio triggers or that kind of thing, um, you know, they, they know that they're going to be rejected for behaving in that way. And then they know that uh, they, they respond in a, an emotional way and, and it can cause things like oppositional defiance disorder. So um, it, in relation to complex PTSD, it's the fight, flight, fawn, or freeze. So 
someone with RSD, uh, their fight response would generate an op uh, oppositional defiance disorder. Or um, some of uh, like women uh, who are on the spectrum, many of us fawn, and that means we like overly compliment people or act overly nice or you know do things to be people pleasers, and all of that is out of a fear of rejection. Um, and and so you know really for me in learning to cope with that and, and navigating it is part of learning about my masking and um, and how I uh, you know how I've like trying to understand how I've programmed myself in responding to people and and kind of taking back um, my story along that way. Yep, absolutely. And how, how do you cope with RS? RS RSD day to day? Um, you know, I think there's little things. I think a lot of the work uh, having to do with equality in the workplace and um, and uh, making space for women in the workplace, you know, like not over apologizing, you know, teaching myself uh, how to take certain words out of my emails, you know, like take just, you know, quick cut, what do they call it? Don't uh, cut yourself off at the knees, right? So um, reteaching myself how to write emails and, um, you know, and how to navigate certain conversations. Um, I think that's part of why I started working on my uh, my idea called hacking hired so there just isn't a lot of transparency in the recruiting process and um, for me to try and better understand that process both as a job seeker I've kind of always been intrigued with that process how I got started at jobbing a long time ago I was like who's posting these jobs who's behind this job board um, you know wanting to understand the process so that I could like master the process uh, and I think that's part of me coping with RSD is if I understand the rules of the game, then I can know how to play it and I know how I can work the game to my favor. Um, and I think that's helped me a lot along the way. And that's why I've wanted to share those kinds of ideas with other people that are, are trying to figure it out as well. Wow, that's a very powerful story. Thank you. And next we transition to one area that, which is not often talked about in the community, uh, domestic violence and how how it affects people who are neurodiverse. If you're comfortable sharing, can you share your story of domestic violence? Uh, yeah, so um, I know, Nathan, I actually brought this up to you and um, asked to talk about it. And I, I do think it is really important, but I'm also really anxious about <laughs> like what's the right line of um, how much do I share and how much do I hold back and uh, and all of those questions and I, and I think that's just part of being a victim of domestic violence in, in general um, but I know that it's important to talk about because it's something that so easily gets overlooked and I think as you um, as you brought up I think domestic violence also often happens to people who are neurodiverse because we don't uh, pick up on little cues sometimes the way that uh, someone who's neurotypical might. Um, I, I, I feel like I always have to say this first. My, my parents are wonderful people. My family, I come from a wonderful family. Um, but it, my, my sister was lured in by a terrible person. Uh, my sister's a decade older than me. And uh, I was the tag along on dates, right? You know, I think my parents thought, oh, she won't get into any trouble if, if you know, her sister's there. And, um, and he just didn't care. 
And that was a, a really hard experience for uh, young people to go through. Um, you know, so it, that was my first, uh, my sister's abusive boyfriend, that was my first experience with domestic violence. And uh, the type of control someone can have over your life if they decide that they want to, um, if they decide that they want to, right? So, um, you know, stalking phone calls and, um, you know, Friday night lights getting chased out of the football game and um, just stuff that can seem kind of uh, juvenile, but uh, there were some more serious things that happened as well um, that can have a, a lifetime imprint. And, um, you know, ultimately both ended up safe and, uh, in, and that ended. Um, but I, I got myself into a situation about a, a decade ago. My, um, my mom passed away and I started making, I was really depressed. I started making bad decisions. I ended up in a, a bad relationship and um, that ended up bad, ending very badly as well. And it, it had so many parallels to what had happened to me uh, and my sister when I was little. Um, and it, you know, I always told myself that I was strong and that I wasn't going to let it happen to me and that I was going to, uh, you know, that it, it wouldn't happen to me, but um, it can happen to any of us. And part of the cycle of abuse is really um, it, the abuser separates the person from their safety nets and, and from their family. And I think as a neurodiverse person, it's easy to miss that at first and to think that it, it's not happening the way you think it's happening. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so I, I was able to get out of that situation and my friends and family helped me, helped me. And, uh, you know, really, I, th I really was able to turn my life around, but I, I think there's an aspect to that where I feel like I, um, I've in some ways dedicated my life to helping others, um, you know, wanting to, uh, wanting to give back and, and to help prevent others from experiencing similar pain and, and going through those challenges. Um, but yeah, like there's a, you know, the, there's a, an important reason why we, we need to talk about these issues and yes. if there's a, any way that I can prevent it from happening to anyone else, you know, I'm, I'm open to sharing resources, um, you know, sharing strategies, you know, it's, it's not always easy to just walk away, uh, by the time you realize what's really happening, um, or by the time they've escalated to a point of violence, uh, they've, the abuser is already, uh, essentially segregated you from resources and safety nets. Um, so if anyone is listening to this and needs to create a plan to find a way out, I'd, I'd be happy to help share resources for that. That is very powerful st story, oh, Rachel. Thank, thank you for sharing. I'm sure that was hard. Yeah, thanks. Okay. And and how did you overcome all these challenges? And what what, what did you do to get from there to get to where you are today? Um, well, I, I think there's a, a word that goes around in my family and that's grit. Um, my, my aunt <laughs> likes to remind me a lot about that, but another way my late mom would say is she'd call me a tough cookie. Uh, you know, and I, I come from, uh, you know, both my parents were first generation college students. My dad is a, a first generation, uh, first generation born here immigrant. Uh, my grandmother came through Ellis Island and, um, and his 
his dad came uh, came an immigrant through Canada. They're both Scottish. Um, you know, it's, it's it, it was always the call to work harder. Um, I grew up on 100 acres, and I constantly heard how I had to put more elbow grease into it, and I had to work harder. Uh, and I think that really made a big impact on, on me. I think that's also part of the masking and, and the RSD that there's a constant pressure on myself to do more and, uh, and to, um, you know, it's never enough. Right. So there's a little bit of battling that, but, um, I'm also fairly certain my mom was on the spectrum. Uh, from what I understand, she read the entire local library before she got into high school. <laughs> and, it, and it was a, wow. a, lot, a large library. Um, and, and she made an impact on a, a lot of people. But, um, you know, I, I think that's how I've accomplished what I have is that work ethic that my parents uh, instilled in me. Wow, that is incredible. You are a brave woman and a true overcomer. It's like, thank, thank you for sharing that story. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, okay, it's yeah. hard to talk about, you know, like, uh, yeah. cause it, there's, I mean, there's things about my story that and when I tell people, they're like, Oh, like they don't like, it, it's a lot for the average person. And, you know, yes. for me, it's like, yeah, that's just something that happened. And yep. And then that other thing happened. And, um, you know, so it's, it's hard in this kind of a, a big forum. Right. Uh, so to, to share some of those nitty gritty details, but yeah, yep. I've, uh, I've, I appreciate you acknowledging as a lot that I've, uh, overcome. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And last, Lastly, what resources can you recommend to people who have gone through similar experiences such as yourself? Um, well, so I mentioned the Community First uh, nonprofit. Um, I yeah, they actually they came out with a documentary called Listen, and it was in response to the movie that Sia uh, recently released called Music. Sia released a movie on autistics, and it um, caused quite a disruption in the autism uh, yes. community. Yeah, because. Um, basically no one involved is autistic uh, and they really didn't listen to anyone um, from, uh, from the community and they're really presenting some very problematic and scary, uh, scary situations. Um, so I would recommend that documentary listen uh, from communication first on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I really like the autistic cats the Autistic Cats is an account managed by, I think, four people who have autism, and they each share their uh, perspectives and speak a lot about what it means to be autistic. Um, there's also an account called The Autistic Life, which produces uh, some really great content as well. I think it would be valuable to employers, too. Um, mm, yes. I, I also have found that the... Um, the work by Marta Rose called Neurodivergent Insurgent. Um, she's on Instagram and she talks, she's helped me quite a bit. She talks about RSD, um, complex PTSD, but more specifically with ADHD and autism. And I really like the way, uh, you know, she does very well at, at articulating how uh, many ADHD and autistic people have uh primarily ADHD, but the way we think and the way we think it and process time and experiences, it, it really valued her insights there. There's also the neurodivergent activist who's on Instagram and I think uh, Twitter as well. And then on YouTube, there's some YouTube accounts I wanted to share. One of them is Ashburgers on the inside. And that's a gentleman who shares what it means to be high functioning on the spectrum. 
And there's a woman called Yo Samdi Sam, and she talks about her autism. It's really a great perspective uh, as a, a woman with autism. There's also an account called How to ADHD, and her structure is uh, a little bit more of like talking about the wall of awful, which was uh, another gentleman's idea, but you know that how hard it can be to get past the wall of awful and, and get things done from as someone with ADHD. Uh, there's also a creator on YouTube called broken Dolly TV. She has a playlist and, um, the reason I wanted to speak about her is she is a, a, a black woman with ADHD and I want to make sure we're giving voices to um, people from a, a variety of backgrounds, but she has Absolutely. a whole, yeah, yeah. She has a whole playlist on being an adult with Asperger's. And then uh, one of the originals is uh, Dr. Temple Graydon or Grandin. Um, she is, uh, she's one of the first very public women with autism and does a lot of speaking and advocacy work as well. Wow. That's a long list. And you... <laughs> <laughs> let me give you everything. right? <laughs> but frankly, the stories, even your story is so important because despite how far you and I have come, the sad truth is there are a lot of people out there who have not come as far. They're just, I, I say they're still in their dark place, so to speak, and yeah. they're suffering alone. Yeah. And yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> it is. And that's why I feel like, you know, as a white woman who functions on the spectrum and is high functioning and has quite a lot of privilege, I feel like it's like this moral obligation to speak up and to help create pathways for liberations for others who are maybe have less privilege or are still in that dark place, you know, that, that aren't as, uh, uh, I guess, uh, absorbed into this hmm. content, right? Like, I, you know, what's one thing we talk about with autism and ADHD, when we get on a topic, we like go into the topic, right? And that's always been a thing of mine that if there's something I need to know or want to learn about, I will try to find out everything, right? Um, so if I can share that and, and make that available to other people and make it easier for them, then that helps me feel a lot better. Yep, definitely. And that's another reason why I started this podcast. Yeah. It yeah. shares the messages of hope to people. Indeed. Yeah. You've really actually, uh, you know, in, in this time that I've been focusing on, on security, you connected with me, um, I'd say fairly early on, it was maybe a year or two into this and, um, but, you know, at first I wasn't sure, you know, who you are and what this, what it meant for you as a man reaching out and trying to lift up women. And, um, you know, I, I, some of my baggage is being skeptical of people, right? But uh, you, you've just blown me away, Nathan, at the, your generosity of spirit and action and the amount that you've given to others and, and ways that you've created space for others to speak and created space for others to, uh, to shine. It's just, it's been very inspiring to me and helped me uh, encourage encouraged me in ways from afar uh, to keep going. So thank you. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, and that's Yay. all the questions I had. And yeah. thank you, Rachel. That was a very powerful story. I'm sure it was not easy to share that. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely hard. And, and then it's, you know, yeah. So thank you. Yep. Thank you. Yep. And, <laughs> Thanks again for everything you do. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan. You as well.